Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is the friend I communicate with using ESP because who needs iPhones, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I am confused. You're confused? This, this movie posits that ESP only works between a person and a robot. So which am I, Andy? Am I the oh. person or the robot in our pairing? I think I'm going to leave that for you, our listeners to decide. Hey, we have a guest star. Yes, I'm very excited to meet our guest star. I am too. Well, I've known our guest star for a long time, but I'm excited to see him. Dennis Henry Henley is a director, writer, producer, and editor. He's made four feature films, most recently a documentary called The Animal People, which was executive produced by Joaquin Phoenix and exposes the story of six American activists jailed by the federal government as terrorists for running an animal rights campaign. His most recent fiction film is Goodbye World, a post-apocalyptic relationship comedy starring Adrian Greiner, Gabby Hoffman, Carrie Bechet, uh, Ben McKenzie, Kid Cudi, Mark Weber, and a bunch of other people. He's also produced a number of documentaries on the history of hip-hop and directed a film chronicling the last performance of the Wu-Tang Clan with ODB. He's currently co-writing a, a, uh, a young adult science fiction novel with an eye toward development of a TV or film, TV show or film. So welcome, welcome, Dennis. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you're here. You're one of our big fans and... I'm glad. So, I'm so glad. Yay. So, Dennis, <laughs> we often let our guests pick the movie. Uh, and I am super curious as to why you picked The Black Hole, which is from 1979, if, if I'm recalling correctly. You are recalling correctly. So why The well, Black Hole? <clears throat> that's when it was re released. But, um, you know, a lot of kids my age and Andy's age... Uh, you know, I don't know your age, Larry, but uh, we um, we grew up uh, loving Star Wars. That's that's kind of the dominant narrative. Uh, I never saw Star Wars as a kid. What I did see was the black hole. And I think it says a lot about who I became as an adult, which is, you know, complicated, messy and <laughs> lacking in ending. Um, <laughs> so uh, I remember uh, lying on my living room floor uh, on the brown carpet in Wabash, Indiana, watching the wonderful world of Disney on Sunday night when they showed the black hole. It probably would have been early 80s. I, I don't think they put it on the wonderful world of Disney in 79. Um, and just having my mind blown. And there is a particular moment in this film that infected my, you know, dream world and caused nightmares for many years. <laughs> and it has Aww. always stuck with me. And I was like, you know, always in love with this movie. This was like, I wasn't allowed to see movies, even though I became a filmmaker. I didn't really watch movies as a kid. My parents didn't take me to the movies, so that's why I didn't see Star Wars. But I did see stuff on Wonderful Older Disney. That was my primary like source of films. Awesome. And this movie really, really hit me. I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. I don't know. This movie may have had something to do with that. Um, but it really had a big impact on me. And so when I, you know, was listening to your podcast and thinking about Disney movies that made, made an impression on me, this really was the primary one that came to mind. Oh, that's so awesome. cool. Yay. And as a millennial, it was nice to go back to something to that century. I was not a part of, um, <laughs> and really, and really explore it. 
No, um, you were I was two when this movie came out. So so it is still okay. a part of my childhood as well. Okay. A- Andy, can you uh, can you set this up with uh, key facts about the black hole, please? Yeah, I'd love to. So some key facts to set the stage. Um, a black hole is a space where gravity is so intensely strong that nothing can escape. There's no light, no stuff. No radiation, nothing can escape a black hole, right? Uh, it's been posited that if someone came within 6,000 kilometers of a black hole, they would start feeling pretty uncomfortable because the body would start to stretch. There's actually a term for this. It's called spaghettification. And I'm not making this up. It's spaghettification is what happens when an intense gravitational field pulls you into a long strand of spaghetti. Uh, what I call Saturday morning. Right? <laughs> So like most movies set in space, you're going to have to check your science brain at the door for this movie. And since I'm married to a rocket scientist, I had to tell you that. <laughs> I, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson has come out against this movie. I'm not kidding. I, I found him like saying, ignore all the science here. This is this is all garbage science. Yeah, I mean, the phys- it, it's tough if you have anything to do with physics. It's tough. Um so a lot of movie, a lot of people call this movie a flop, um, but it returned thirty five million on a twenty million dollar budget, and I can certainly think of floppier movies. Uh, this was Disney's highest budget movie to date in nineteen seventy nine, and the production actively sought a PG rating in order to try something different than typical Disney fare. Um, in an interview I read, Anthony Perkins called it a Captain Nemo in space thing. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good characterization. I said the same thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was like, this is 20,000 leagues under the sea, but in space. Right, right. Agree. Okay. So you the and development- me, Anthony Perkins. <laughs> so the development of this movie predates Star Wars. And the film was originally known first as Space Station One, and then a space probe one. And there were allegedly 500 titles kicked around before landing on the black hole. Like, it's a black hole. We should just call it the black hole. Um, the first of which, uh, black holes were spotted in real life in 1971. And so executive producer Ron Miller thought people might be curious enough about the new discovery and the title to get them into theaters. So a lot of people talk about um, how the black hole was Disney's answer to Star Wars, right? And I think if you're looking at a chronological release timetable, I could see where you could come to that conclusion. And, you know, it certainly was an answer, but I don't think the genesis of that project started that way. It started, I think, as a disaster movie because in in that genre, because in 1970, there was a disaster film called Airport. Uh, In 72, there's a movie called The Poseidon Adventure, 74, The Towering Inferno, all disaster movies and all you know, raking in, you know, millions and millions of dollars, um, all have star power. And it sort of establishes this genre of big budget spectacle disaster movies where all hell breaks loose. Right. And there are plenty of nods in this movie, I think, to Kubrick's uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, especially the ending. Um, So in and around 1972, Disney starts talking disaster in space. And by my count, there are 10 separate screenwriters, at least, who work on this project. It's shelved. It comes off the shelf. And eventually, a TV writer named Jeb Rosebrook takes a stab at the project and gives us pretty much what we have here. But then, of course, they brought in Jerry Day, and she made revisions, enough revisions to garner some screen credit. Um 
Star Trek, the motion picture, releases in the same week as the black hole, and it blows it out of the water. So Star Trek brings in $139 million because, again, it's Star Trek, right? Um, the, it just faces a lot of stiff competition in the space sci-fi category, but there are a whole lot of movies in this time period that are set in space probably because of Star Wars, right? Um, Time After Time, Logan's Run, Fantastic Planet, the whole Superman franchise, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, and of course, you know, the little picture by George Lucas. And little side note, sidebar, one of my favorite computer games as a child was called Space Probe Math. (laughs) And it was produced by Disney (laughs) based on this movie. And... In our classroom, we had a Radio Shack TRS-80, and you had to do math problems in order to keep yourself from being sucked down the black hole. And if you weren't fast enough, you, like, got sucked down the black hole. So that probably explains my anxiety when it comes to math. Wow. (laughs) So there's a whole lot there, but... Well, we unpack that on our therapy episodes that we do occasionally, using Disney movies to solve our psychological trauma. Right, right. So, yeah, I don't do math problems quickly, and that's a problem. <laughs> well, then let's get into, instead of math, the science of storytelling. <laughs> nice segue, Larry. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> so let's start with the Manish Tana. Uh, as Dennis knows, and, and longtime listeners know, the Manish Tana is why, where we ask, why does this movie begin where it begins? which is sometimes related to the inciting incident, which we'll talk about in a couple of seconds, but not always. So this movie opens up, and was really curious to me, it opens up two minutes of darkness, right? Uh, There's sound, but me and the kids at home were like, ooh, is something wrong with our Disney Plus? Uh, We we were like, is something wrong here? I'm like, no, 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 this is is 1979. Uh, Then we get a map of stars, and slowly into frame, we get a spaceship that that comes through. You might not even notice the exact moment where the ship comes into frame until it's moved a a little bit into it. And in that ship, we meet the majority of our cast of characters, as they are returning from whatever mission it was that they were sent out to do. They have successfully completed said mission uh, and are on the return journey back to Earth. So I'm going to throw this question out to uh, Dennis and Andy, and there may not be a profound answer here, or there may be. Why start the movie this way? And you can tackle any part of that you want. You could tackle the two minutes of darkness. You could tackle the stars uh, or or the entry of a spaceship slowly moving through space. What do you guys think? Well, I, you know, the, the darkness is very striking. And then after that, you have uh, one of the first sort of like CGI intros um, of any film where it's sort of like a predecessor, I think, to Tron, which came a little bit later from Disney, mm-hmm. right? right? Where you're seeing this sort of like green CGI created grid over the space. Uh, uh, the stars come up, you see this grid. It introduces you to the black hole in this CGI created world. You're getting this amazing score. I mean, the score for this movie is just like uh, beautiful. No, it's and fantastic. It's, it's, it's building this tension. And you're like, what is going on here? And immediately, the first the first thing you hear in this movie is the robot. 
And I think this movie is a lot about like, this is one of the first films I think that, that tackled this idea of like robots versus humans Mm -hmm. and like artificial intelligence versus humans. And like this, this, this thing that I think has become a very um, common theme in films. uh, We start with the robot. And one of the first things the robot says is the reason for our present variation is this largest black hole I have ever encountered. Right. And this is coming from Vincent, which is a robot that is sort of like loosely based, I think, on the Star Wars robots, um, voiced by Roddy McDowell uh, in a charming British accent. This guy is like, you know, always having quips. That's like the story with Vincent. And right away, we get set up that the idea is, you know, we're going through space home, like Larry said, but there is this black hole that is unlike anything they've ever seen. Um, you have Ernest Borgnine immediately saying, my God, it's right out of Dante's Inferno. <laughs> so you're like, whoa, we're dealing with like something that is like epic in, 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 um, in scale and in scope. Mm-hmm. And they can't just continue on without exploring this. So to my mind, like, this is not a movie that sort of sets up its characters and then introduces the inciting incident. It introduces the inciting incident immediately. And then the characters are kind of catching up to that event. And you're getting to know them through this, like this, this situation where they're responding to having encountered an enormous mystery. Right. Um, which like, I think the first half of this movie is just all about tension, all about seduction, all about like setting up things that you haven't seen yet. And, um, that's it starts right from the beginning. So even though there's this kind of like very, you know, lackadaisical like four minutes of like music and then CGI, once you get into like meeting the characters, they're already dealing with the problem right away. Right. Yeah. I was thinking I was thinking about that, too, that just you're thinking about being a moviegoer in 1979. I'm sitting there with my popcorn and the score starts and nothing's on the screen. And I'm in a dark theater in a black theater, you know, and there's no light and there's just sound for two minutes, which is an eternity on film. Right. Um, And I thought that's a really bold choice, but it really does set the tone for audiences wondering, oh, I'm in the black hole. Is this the black hole? Is this how it's going to go? Is this going to be this way the whole time? What is happening? And then here comes the, you know, the grid and you're like, what is this? What is happening? So it's not just the typical, oh, hey, we're going to just run some, you know, we're going to run some credits and you have some time to settle in and, you know, well, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll do that now. You know, it's not that. It's something bigger than that. And and I think Dennis is right. It is kind of leading up to this tension of what in the world's going on. It's teasing you with like existential dread. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the first things yes. that Anthony Perkins says is nothing can escape it. Not even light. Right. And you're like holy crap, like we're, we're, (laughs) we're going into like death, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also want to throw out that two minutes of darkness and sound was very reminiscent for me. I kept thinking 2001, a space odyssey, sure, which, which opens with a very different type of sound, um, but sets off the same sort of grandiose tone. And it almost feels like this movie in many places is echoing off of 2001 a space odyssey oh 100 and and that and it's just getting you into the mindset of we're gonna have big ideas you're really going to have to pay attention 
really look for symbolism, really look for subtext, because right now we're giving you nothing. In fact, right now you're in the black hole. And uh, until we give you light, when you, once we give you light, be, be grateful because we've got a lot of great things to show you. But also remember the contrast, the dread that we're, yeah, that, that same existential dread Dennis was talking about two seconds ago. Like, that's what happens if you go into a black hole. That's what we think happens. Right. Uh, something that Dennis said uh, a moment ago, though, about the exposition, there's almost none in this movie. Uh, and when he says, like, what he said, and I have the same thing in my notes, I don't get a chance to really sit and meet with these characters at the beginning of the movie before the inciting incident because they immediately find the black hole and they get to the spaceship. And by the time the crew gets off and lands on the spaceship, on the space station, really, I'm like, how many people are coming out of this ship? Because I'm not quite sure how, how big the crew is who's in charge, what everybody's role on the ship is, like each each person's job. The movie expects that we're going to pick up that information as we go. It has no time to hold our hand and let us really get to know our cast of characters before plunging them immediately into the movie. Well, and if, well, there's, if there's you know, exposition... Say, oh, go ahead, sorry. Dennis. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'll say one thing that like, I think that's absolutely true. And one thing that really struck me watching it this time was that um, just the relationship between the humans on the Palomino. The Palomino is sort of the spaceship that that we start on, and it finds this other huge, like you said, space station spaceship that's near the black hole and seems to be dead. There's no lights on it. It's completely like turned off. The crew on the Palomino, one of the crew members is this robot, uh, Vincent. And like the empathy of the crew towards this character of Vincent is remarkable. Like the mm -hmm. first character that we that we sort of throw into peril as storytellers is Vincent. He goes outside the ship to repair something and his tether breaks and he starts flying out into space. And like that is what the storytellers are like setting up as like the character that you're supposed to connect with. Right. Right. A robot. That's amazing. Um, and like you're saying, like. We're, we're sort of just thrown into this thing and the exposition comes completely through character. Like uh, Kate, who's the, the sole female on the, on the Palomino, she says at one point, she recognizes this ship they're headed towards, the large ship. Uh, it was the ship that her father was on. And we learn that, you know, her father died uh, from this ship. Like we're learning all these story points through character. And one thing that like really struck me about this movie was that I feel like it's like this really interesting uh, window into the battle between like the more complex, dark, uh, challenging movies of the 70s and then what Star Wars ushered in, which mm -hmm. was like a more simplistic uh, plot driven kind of blockbuster mentality that Hollywood embraced. And this movie is like trying to straddle those two things in many cases awkwardly. But like the first half of this movie in particular is so based in like that kind of 70s complex um, character driven narrative that it's it's not going to hold your hand. Like you're saying, it's going to be like, oh, you know, here's some complex characters. They have complex motivations. Anthony Perkins is very odd. Like there's just a lot of oddity in this film that I don't think um, you would see in a Star Wars. So the idea that Disney was like, oh, this is our Star Wars. <laughs> it's like kind of amazing. 
Well, I mean, it's also I, I'll I want to get back to plot, but I do just want to spin off that point. This is not a movie that's really made for children in the way that Star Wars is something that I think the whole family can enjoy. The kids have maybe one character they can connect to in that sort of fantasy way. And that that's arguably Vincent, arguably also old Bob when we get to him. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but where, whereas immediately when you watch Star Wars, you're like, oh, as a kid, I'm Luke, right? The second that you're there, you project yourself onto Luke. Here it's mostly adults. One of the adults is a little younger than the other, but he's still an adult and a robot that looks cute. So I don't I don't know that I'm you know when you're comparing it to Star Wars I think it's an apt comparison but I I think we can see why this might not be the same family friendly level that we get from Star Wars in a movie. Oh I no I, I mean that, like, when when Vincent calls um Pizer up to the main deck to check out that holograph right and we learn all about black holes and they're the most destructive force in the universe nothing can escape it. One day they'll devour the entire universe, entire sun. I mean, it's hell, right? It's yeah. absolute hell. That's that's not something we've seen from a Disney picture. Let me get us through plot because we have so much to unpack. I'm going to okay, get us through plot sure. pretty quickly. So we're we've we've identified the exposition and the inciting incident. Let's get through rising action and climax. And I think we're going to have a fairly easy time here with rising action. Most of this movie is going to be rising action, as most movies are. They get on the ship. They meet Dr. Hans Reinhardt. They have dinner with him a couple of times. They get the sense that, number one, he's a genius and he may be capable of great things. But also, number two, he is untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. They they know this on an inst- most of them know this on an instinctual level, and there is a threat of danger coming forward. Right? Uh, yeah. They continue to explore the ship. They meet a, a ton of robots that are shooting around, uh, that are practicing shooting, that get R and R, that are very aggressive and assertive. The most assertive is Maximilian. Vincent meets an older model of one of his breed of robot, old Bob, uh, who seems to be the only other person on the ship. We learn a lot of things about Dr. Reinhardt. Where do at what point do you feel this movie reaches its climax? Now, there's a couple of ways that we define climax here, and I'm not sure which one is going to do us the best work here. Generally speaking, I say the climax is where the forces of good fight the forces of evil. I feel like it's the moment where if things don't go well, all hope might be lost, right? I also talk about it being the moment of highest tension. And I'm not sure that there's any one moment that is all of these things at the same time. So what what are you guys thinking here? When does this movie feel like the climax for you? When do you think, feel the? I, I think of the three, the most important one here is the greatest tension, uh, but the other definitions also work here. I think when Doctor McRae's at the hospital and they're saving her after two of the crew members have already died, right? And mm-hmm. they're saving her. That feels to me like okay, we didn't save those two, but we're saving her. Um, it's it feels, and of course, then they have to get to the probe or whatever. Um, that feels like a climactic moment to me. Another place is where Vincent, it's more of an emotional climax, I think, where Vincent and Bob have their, you know, will you bring me on? Oh, yeah, I'm going to 
you know, I'm going to carry you. And, and that kind of, that, that feels like an emotional climax. And then also when they go into the black hole, because they've been promising that this entire movie, it's in the title, it's in the first two minutes. It's, those are for me, the three. It's um, what we paid our ticket for, right? That's like right. If, if they got out of the black hole and we <clears throat> never went in, I want my money back. I, right. I came here, they promised me something and they're going to deliver me that black hole moment. Right. And when they go into that black hole and it's weirdly turned kind of red, right? It used to be blue. Now it's red. Um, then we get to, then, you know, it's it's like, um, it's a lot like going down the tunnel in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, like very much just, so. Things just get really weird. Um, and I mean, in a cool way, I like watching weird things, but like, it's, it's definitely different. Well, I think, you know, the... In, in a normal version of this movie, going into the black hole would be the climax. But I feel like the second half of this movie is a complete mess um, because it's trying to be 17 different things at once. Yes. Uh, you know, in the as far as I understand, in the original script, um, they didn't let any of the actors see the last 20 pages because basically the end of the movie was like they said they go into the black hole, period. Nobody had any idea what that was going to look like on screen. They made that this was a six month shoot. They didn't really figure that out until the last month or two. And then they went back and reshot some of it. So, like, I think in terms of the actual like storytelling, like what was going on in the narrative here, for me, like the climax is the moment where Maximilian and Vincent fight. Maximilian is, uh, you know, you referred to um, the uh, the guy who. What's his name? He's played by Maximilian Schell, right? Uh, the great Dr. German actor, Reinhardt. Reinhardt. He basically has like commandeered this huge ship and he's the only human left on it. And his lieutenant is this like ominous robot named Maximilian. Um, and he's like this big hulking figure, completely red metal. Uh, apparently he was originally like designed as black, but they were like, oh, he looks too much like Darth Vader. We need to like uh, change him to red. Um, and there's this moment, you know, near, near the two thirds of the way through the film where he fights with Vincent, who's our sort of like cute little robot who came with our humans on the Palomino. And this is like the idea. Vincent is a very human robot. You know, he's like constantly quoting human philosophers, making human jokes, doing all these sorts of things. Maximilian doesn't speak like mm. he makes these vocalizations that, uh, from what I read were they basically took a Jaguar and put it through like this digital distortion field. Oh, wow. And that's, that's the sounds that Maximilian makes, right? And so there's this moment where the two of them fight and Vincent ends up killing Maximilian. This is like the, the, the battle between the mindless robot of the future and the sort of robot that can empathize. Not only is Vincent human-like, but like he has an ESP connection with one of the, the crew members from the Palomino. She's able to like talk to him through ESP, which is so new agey and weird. I want like to talk about the, that later. It oh, is not will. ESP that's going on there, but <laughs> well, we'll, we'll talk about that most, later. He's a completely human uh, robot. So this yeah, is sure, like the yeah. battle between humanity and um, technology that's going on throughout this film. Right. Because, you know, to, to go back to like the horrifying element of this for me as a kid all of these sort of like, there's three different kind of robots on this ship. Um, one of those kinds are these sort of like humanoid, uh, you know, eyes wide shut, robed mm -hmm. figures with these like globe um, masks that they wear. And it turns out that they're actually the crew of this ship that supposedly had been sent back to the US 
or to, to, to the earth. Um, but we're actually turned into kind of like zombies by Reinhardt on this ship. And, um, so like there's this idea on the ship that humans are turned into robots. Vincent's very much a human type robot. So that battle between the two of them to me is the climax. Cause that's the moment where like Vincent beats Maximilian and says like humanity will triumph over the, the sort of scourge of technology that may be approaching us. So I'm going to throw out here that I think the real climax of this movie is missing from this movie. Oh, yes. um, I think <laughs> I think that's the real issue here. So Dennis alluded to the reveal that what we thought were a bunch of robots on the ship. Some of them are robots, but some of them are the crew that have been turned essentially into zombies uh, wearing a robot mask. Right. Uh, but for me, the real climax of this movie should be our heroes confront Dr. Reinhardt and defeat him. He's the bad guy of yeah. this movie. We do have a scene, and it's the same scene in which we reveal that the, the robot, some of the robots are actually humans in disguise, where Dr. Reinhardt uh, turns on them once that revelation has been made, but he beats them. Uh, you know, he kills one of them. He kills Alex. Uh, Kate gets captured and sent away. He wins the confrontation. There is no confrontation between our heroic captain and Dr. Reinhardt, which is set up from the beginning. As soon as as soon as the captain gets on the ship, you know, he and Reinhardt are at odds and Reinhardt's like, you may be the captain of your ship, but I'm the captain of this ship. They've got this alpha male energy going against each other where Reinhardt says, I make the rules. And then the captain says, well, we'll, we'll say that we follow your rules, but everybody listens to me. They are supposed to go head to head at some point in this movie. Our heroes must confront our villain. We yeah. get Vincent and Maximilian as a fight, and I think that fight should be there. But Maximilian is the secondary antagonist of this movie. He's not even really a person. I mean, I, I think I think he has a personality don't get me wrong but mm -hmm. you know it's it's like in the middle of a gunfight you know watching someone being focused on the gun instead of the person who's wielding the gun and i don't know what to do about that other than to say the reason i have trouble pinpointing the climax is i know that's what the climax should be and it never happens in this movie Right. And picking backing off on that, um, there's the Dr. McCray, the when she talks about her father who, you know, died on this ship, then I think, well, is he one of the crew? And I kept waiting for this moment where like she discovers her father, like the the, the, the yes. man with the limp, right? I, I was like, that's her dad. That's him. Your dad. Right. <laughs> and so, like, how does she redeem that? Like, I kept waiting for that bit of redemption, which did not come. How do you not have that reunion? How do you not take off the mask and have her go, Dad? Right. Yeah, oh, well, That's yeah my especially father. especially after she's just been through this escape where she was very nearly, you know. Uh, robotized herself, right? Well, he word? should be the robot that's robotizing her, right? Oh, and she yeah. should be <laughs> pleading to him, Dad, don't do this to me. And what's more, it should work. Right. She should be able to conjure whatever little bit of human is left in her father, get to see the love of her father 
one more time. He can't live. It's not like he can't go home. He's a zombie now. Right. But we should get that refutation of of Reinhardt's ideal, which is that people should be super logicals, people should be zombies, people should be robots, uh, unfeeling, un, uh, and and have it be that even in this diminished state, love is such a powerful force that can overcome it. We get none of that in this movie. Uh, and I think the movie wanted it to be there. I think the movie of the first half expects that second half to, to come happen, but the second half just goes all over the place. I need well, to I, move... you know... I'm oh, sorry. Okay. So I was just going to say, I mean, I, I totally agree with all that. I do think that, like, the second half goes all, all over the place because I think there was no there was no singular vision making this film. This was a film that had been in development at Disney, like Andy said, for six or six years, five years at this point. And it, it got greenlit because of the success of Star Wars. And it was a bunch of different people, extremely talented people, uh, coming together to make a movie that really didn't have a singular vision. I mean, one of the best lines in the movie that I think actually has like, um, you know, uh, sort of points at a vision, at a plot, what came from Maximilian Schell. And it was an improv line that Reinhardt says, where he he looks to the crew from the Palomino and says, protect me from Maximilian. Mm-hmm. And you're like, he made that up on the set. You know, like that, that was like, he had created this whole world that he ultimately was frightened of. And like the kind of depth that you're talking about with like, can Kate meet her mom, her dad? Um, are these two captains of these ships going to come to loggerheads with each other? Like there was way too much emphasis, I think in the second half placed on trying to give it a, uh, you know, a, a kind of space opera feel that, that it just was like a false note for it. I mean, there's the 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 moment. There's this moment in the score where it shifts from being sort of like uh, uh, pointing at dread and tension and suspense, and goes into like triumph and adventure. It becomes kind of like a John Williams Star Wars score mm-hmm. um, when Dan, the the captain of the Palomino, is rescuing Kate. And from that moment forward, about halfway through the movie, it just goes off the rails and becomes like something completely different. Yeah. Um, and it it does lack a climax, like Larry saying, because I think there's just a lot of like competing interests um, and, and no clear vision to like where it's aiming at. All right. I want to get us through the falling action so we can we can open up a little bit. So whatever the climax is, it happens. <laughs> and then we go into the black hole. This is our falling action of the movie. And it's certainly not a return to a new status quo, but I want to unpack this ending because I don't think I've seen a weirder ending to a Disney movie since Andy and I did The Watcher in the Woods and she made me watch the second deleted ending and we had to unpack that. So I'm going to describe it and then I'm going to open it up for conversation because I don't know that all of our viewers have seen this movie. They they should totally go see it. You should stop right now and go watch the movie and then come back and hit play again. (laughs) Or do what do my that. children did and watch the last seven minutes because for at least for this part of the conversation. This okay. movie is great. You should watch the whole thing. You should watch the whole thing. Every <laughs> okay, bit of and if you don't like it, remember who your friend was who said just watch <laughs> the last seven minutes. You'll love it. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, to, let us know. Let us know where you stand. Up. Come back and let us know. All right, so, but I'm spoiling it. So if you if you are going to watch it, skip this, then come back to it. 
That's right. They they go into the black hole. They so there's two pieces here. First, we see Reinhardt and Maximilian floating in space. Maximilian is not wearing uh, a spacesuit. I am at a loss as to how he got here. Last time I saw him, he was pinned under debris in the space station and we thought he was dead, but he's floating in space. And then we see Maximilian and the two of them start floating towards each other as we're going into the black hole. At this moment, one of my children said, are they going to kiss? Because they are getting closer and closer together. And I actually think that that what Andy brought up earlier about spaghettification may be at play here because they seem to merge. And what we see is Maximilian is now in, no, sorry, not Maximilian. Reinhardt is now inside of Maximilian. We see his eyes peering out from within the robot casing. But more than that, he's landed on a planet and he's standing on it with, he's got multiple arms, but two of them are up to the heavens looking down on what looks to be a hellish landscape. It's a desert world, there's a lot of fire, and there are people there. And those people, and we don't we don't really get a good look at them, they remind me of the drones, the crew on his ship, the living yeah. zombies. I don't know if it's them, or if he's just landed on a world where people also look sort of like zombies, because I don't know how they would have gotten there. But they're there. It's hell. It's Larry. absolutely I, hell. <laughs> of course it's hell. Okay, we're all in agreement. But I have a question for you. Yes. Is Reinhardt the devil now? Oh, I, don't think he's the de- I don't think he's the devil, but I think he's definitely like, I think he and Maximilian have merged into the one being that they've always been. And you, you, before they were like creator and created. Now they're one entity and now they're serving out some sort of eternal torment. I mean, there's definitely an irony here because what he did to other people was turn them into robots. Now he himself has been put inside a robot. Absolutely. I think he's the devil now. I think he's ruling over hell. His arms are up on the mountain. He's looking down at the subjects below him. This person who once wanted to see all of space and see what was on the other side, his eyes are cast down. He's trapped immobile. Uh, I, I wonder if this movie posits that in some way uh, he has become the Lord of Hades. Uh, he's He is the worst of humanity. He's the one who wanted forbidden knowledge. He He's Faust who sold his soul, and now he rules over hell. He will be miserable there forever, but he created this hell. Whereas, yeah, absolutely. my God, right out of Dante's Inferno, right? I, I, I think it's set up that way. Yeah. Meanwhile, well, he says he says he says during the film, he says uh, at one point, this is the the black hole is the possibility to find the ultimate knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely the Garden of Eden. Sure. And yes, he is he is seeking for something beyond um, human. Uh, what's allowed to humans? And yes, he does th- so through technology, and he ends up absolutely ruling over hell. One thing that's interesting, like visually I saw, you know, there's this, it's a, it's a striking moment, right? Where like Maximilian and, uh, Reinhardt on top of that mountain with the, the flames of hell beneath them. Um, there is a, um, 
you know, it reminded me of something and, and what, you know, reading about the film, I saw that, uh, it, it was connected to night on bald mountain from Fantasia. Mm. Uh, it had the same optical photographer, uh, Bob Broughton, who, who did both those. He did that moment with Maximilian. Oh, and he wow. also was the one who did the optical photography on night and bald mountain. And they do look very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, Maybe, I, so that's that's what happens to him, and then the falling action. Then for the the crew of the Palomino, they go to heaven. Right, they go through what looks. First of all, there's this moment where they spin around and around doing somersaults as the ship careens out of control, and we're seeing their thoughts a little bit. The things that are most important to them, the moments in their the, the things that they've said over the course of the movie that had particular resonance, uh, makes and me wonder. And one of those, Larry, was Christmas. Just so you know. <laughs> well, I, I the reason the, for living. I, it, I stand I'm sorry by that. <laughs> we we did. Uh, I, I'm sorry we did Mickey's Christmas Carol instead of the Black Hole for Christmas this year, Andy. <laughs> yes, this is a Christmas movie. Absolutely, but Christmas movie. It, it, it implies that maybe someone is sifting through their thoughts, thoughts making a judgment for them because they don't get consigned through hell. They fly through hell into a hallway which is seemingly of infinite beautiful crystal uh light uh it's it's uh it's a much better place to be than hell they emerge from the black hole and head towards a bright planet that sort of feels eclipsed end of movie end well, of movie what, what might be a bit of a theological sticking point for some is that um Vincent also has his thoughts coming through right yeah, he's in that ship. He's going as well. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, that whole the whole ending is actually a reshoot. Like the original ending had them ending up uh, in the Sistine Chapel mm-hmm. and uh, behind God, pointing down at Adam. Kate, the 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 ESP woman from the spaceship, was one of the angels uh, in in the scene oh, uh, behind God. And Disney saw that and was like, it's a little too religious. And so they went back and they they reshot in one day the ending that appears in the film, which is this sort of like spinning spaceship that they're in that gives them to a more ambiguous kind of like heavenly world. You know, they actually like they got permission from the Vatican and, and went and shot at the Sistine Chapel, which is kind of amazing. Wow. There is there and is then a <laughs> uh, yeah. Why would you? Yeah, there is a uh, little long playing record. If you guys are familiar with Disney um, Disneyland records of the black hole that I sifted out through my collection. I actually have it. And I was looking in the back of it and I was like, how does this one end? Right? <laughs> like, how do you end this for a child? And so here, I'm going to read that. I'm going to take two minutes and read this to you. Sure, sure. Sud- suddenly everything was calm. They had come through safely. Before them stretched a giant universe filled with planets and stars that had been swallowed by the black hole. Kate was stunned. What will we do now? Well, we can't go back, replied the captain. But that's no reason to give up hope. We've been trained to find new worlds. Let's go find one for ourselves. Well, I wouldn't have mind those, mind those lines of dialogue in this movie. <laughs> that's exactly what I was <laughs> thinking. I was like, that would have provided some clarity. I'm sitting there going, that escape pod does not have enough food. Who's going to eat who first? Right. <laughs> Vincent is safe, but what about everybody else? But it's like, uh, are they finally I was not going thinking home? that. I was not we thinking had, that. But We had lots of thoughts around here. Like, are they finally going home? Is that an eclipse? Is that the Earth that's eclipsing the sun? Are they on the dark side? Like, where are they? Like, what's happening? 
We don't really know. No idea. It doesn't really. And so it just leaves it there for us. But, you know, we know they're on their way home in the beginning of the story when they're kind of like, oh, wow, there's this big black hole, right? Um, but maybe they just go back to where they, maybe they just go back on their initial journey. I don't know. I Maybe. Maybe. Uh, all right. Pretty so nebulous. That, that, that is, I think, uh, the exploration of plot as as far as we can go. Uh, do you want to shift to the next thing on our outline, Andy? I do. I want to talk about Chekhov's gun a little bit and how this concept applies to the black hole. You know, we try to give you a little bit of ideas or several ideas about screenwriting and, and different things you want to think about. And there's this principle of drama um, that's really serious. I mean, it's taken to serious heart in movie making. Every detail has to be paid off, right? If you show something the audience expects you to do something important with that something. Otherwise, it's this false promise or a MacGuffin, right? So we can't be in the dark for two minutes at the beginning of the movie, stare at a black hole outside the window of the Cygnus for most of the movie, and not actually go into the black hole. We were always going into that hole. We've wanted to go into that hole since we've been sitting in the dark from the beginning, right? Um, I'm wondering if there are other places that you guys see that either aren't paid off well or things that are set off and set up and paid off. That if you show something, you've got to do something with that something. Well, I mean, the one that immediately springs to mind we mentioned earlier, which is that we mentioned Kate's father. I expect to see Kate's father that is set up and not paid off. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that for me, that for me is a big one here. That's probably the, the, the biggest one that doesn't get paid off. I, I don't, I, for me, the, the big, the big thing about this movie is I want to go into the black hole about 15 minutes after they get on the ship. Like I want Reinhardt to say, Oh, I'm so glad you're here because we're about to get sucked into a black hole. I didn't want to have to do it on my own. I, as opposed to, waiting to the very end for this thing that we know has to happen. How cool would it have been if that ship had crash landed into that hell planet and they, and, and it becomes a survival thing on that planet there. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of sitting around and eating dinner. I think with, I with think chandelier. Oh, by that's the way. A, okay. That's a great <laughs> scene. That's like sort of like a Django. Uh, it's the scene, same scene. Yes. It's the same scene from 20,000 Leagues Under the it Sea. It really though. is. It is. Great it's, scene. I've seen it already. I, I, this movie has so much has so much eye candy, so much that is visually interesting. And I do want to explore these models. I do want to explore this ship. It's just, it's just, you know, it it's taking too long for it to deliver me the thing that I want. I want what's on the other side of the black hole. I don't care how we get there. I don't need to spend the whole movie getting there. I want to get there. For me, this is like if the Wizard of Oz was uh, an hour and 45 minutes of Kansas, and then it ends with Dorothy crash lands into Oz, opens up the door and sees a world of color. That's cool, but I want to be in Oz, not in Kansas. Or maybe That's my two cents. Or maybe I our may disagree. Or maybe our crew at the beginning, like maybe they want to go into the black hole. Like they all want to go. And what if, what if Reinhardt's like, no, you can't go. Like it's, he's barring entry to them, to getting in there, you know, that they can't get in. It seems what? to me, it seems to me like there's this, 
there's this te- like this mistension. Like if that if that's the last thing where you're going into the hole, right? That you want to kind of build to that. Here's the thing I'm going to say about this movie. I don't like saying it because you're not supposed to view movies this way, right? This is like, this is how you ruin Raiders of the Lost Ark. You ruin Raiders of the Lost Ark by pointing out that if Indiana Jones did nothing, the Nazis would still die when they opened up the Ark of the Covenant and everything Aunt Indy has done has no meaning whatsoever, right? You ruin the black hole when you realize if our crew had never come to the ship, Mac, uh, Dr. Reinhardt and Maximilian would have gone into the black hole and been consigned to hell. Our heroes don't need to be here. There's nothing that they accomplish for, by being here other than getting a couple of them killed. They, it, it's, if anything, this is the Goldilocks parable. Don't go into that house. There are bears in that house. Uh, that, is, is that... And for, and for me, our heroes should be necessary to Reinhardt in some way. Right. He should he should want them there. He should lure them there. He should try right. to seduce them. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't need them. No, he, he doesn't, doesn't even. Them. He doesn't want them there. And they even say things like, "Hey, you know, uh, like uh, uh, Doctor Durant says to him. You know, he tries to persuade Reinhardt to come back." And sharing his success. And he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. He should want Kate. He should need, first of all, I have to say this. And he seems like he does, right? There's this moment where it's like, he seems like he wants Kate, but he doesn't take Kate. And it's weird. It's this kind of, it's weird. Allow me a nerdy moment. Please. Kate does not have ESP. ESP is not the ability to psychically connect with a robot. That's not what ESP is. What Kate should have is a neurochip in her brain that connects over to Vincent. It creates a link between the two of them. She's a cyberneticist uh, whose whose brain can handle that chip. And it should be something that Reinhardt's brain can't do. As brilliant as he is, he can't project his thoughts into the thoughts of the robots. So he needs her. He needs her because it needs to be precision timing for this ship to go into the black hole. All the robots need to be connected to a mainframe and he should want her willingly on the ship. And if she's not willing, he's willing to do whatever it takes, hold the rest of the crew hostage, but to force her to do the thing that he needs her to do. Well, I think, you know, these are all, that's very uh, interesting ideas. I mean, I think that like, what you're describing is the way that the movie would be made now and the way the movie would be made after Star Wars. What I actually love about this movie is basically the the trailing remnants of 70s filmmaking, which is that it's not about, you know, the plot machine working in the correct way and all, hitting all these buttons that you're talking about, which are very satisfying, but it's about character. And like the first half of this movie, I would watch over and over and over again because it is all about suspense to talk about like the, you know, Chekhov's gun. I think what is actually like um, interesting in that respect, it's not the black hole, uh, it's Reinhardt. We don't meet him until 30 minutes into the film, but we've Mm. heard about him over and over and over again. It's like the Kaiser Soze principle. We're hearing about this guy who's just this magician. He's this wonderful scientist. He's this amazing mystery, this enigma, and we want to meet him. And by the time we meet him, it's actually satisfying 
because Maximilian Schell is like chewing the scenery. He's like this like wonderful villain that's been created. And it's it's more in the like realm of like apocalypse now mm-hmm. where you're just going down the river. It's not about like the plot machine. It's about meeting these interesting characters on the boat. And you're headed towards somebody who you know is like a superhuman menace. <laughs> you know, Kurtz, 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 the darkness mm-hmm. in the heart of the forest. And and Reinhardt is the darkness in the heart of space. It's like man's desire to, to embrace the unknown. It's like the dark side of science. And Anthony Perkins has that. He's like, from the beginning of the movie, he's like, well, you know, what if we look, what if we keep going? Everybody else in the ship is like, let's just go home. Let's not go into this place. And Perkins is like, no, no, there's something great to see here. Mm. And that, that kind of like exploration of the, the, the darkness of the heart of man. Um, and it's interesting because Samuel, uh, bottoms who plays the young, you know, he's kind of the hand solo of this story. Uh, he's the brother of Sam bottoms from apocalypse now, who's like the surfer right, in that movie. Right. And I'm like, this is kind of an apocalypse now in space. And I would be there all day long if they kept that. But about halfway through, they're like, yeah, we got to do some Star Wars stuff. And there's going to be this like, you know, asteroid that comes. It becomes an action movie. Right. And it, it loses me at that point. But the first half of this movie, when it's just this like philosophical examination of like um, going deep into the, the the heart of science, basically, like. You know, it's all about danger and mystery and this thing. Can we find out about it? You know, that I'm there all day for. But that's yeah, a, I mean, that's I a think, very different movie than like what what Star Wars ushered in. You know, well, it's a I, 70s film. I think you, again, get lots of theological notes um, when we see that garden. We see that Garden of Eden, right? We see like what's oh, everybody's like, you could produce food for everybody here. But then all of a sudden, no, it's just enough for one. It's barely enough for one. Right. Well, I mean, it's but this, he's it's lying. all mine. No, of course he is, but it's all mine. And it's this is and and that that selfishness and just greed. And I don't want to go back and share anything. And all the knowledge is mine. And well, yeah. I want to move us into character a little bit since we're talking about Reinhardt. The parallel between Reinhardt and Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is it's just there. It's just there for the interpretation. These are two men who have decided that the the laws of man no longer apply to them. They are the arbiters of what is right and wrong. But Mm -hmm. Reinhardt is a much darker fellow than Nemo is because Reinhardt sees other people as machines. If Look, if they can... If they can work for him and keep their sentience, that's great. It's never happened before, but maybe Alex will be the first one uh, who who we can actually have a chat to chat with. But but Reinhardt does. He is in pursuit of his goal. He's he's Ahab in pursuit of the whale, and he doesn't care how many other lives get lost along the journey. Right. He's he's so smart that he's killed almost every part of his soul to get where he is. He's mm. Faust, right? Mm-hmm. He's made that. He says at one point, he says, it's about time that people learn about their failures and my successes. Right. <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> I mean, right. that's what I tell my children every day. <laughs> and then there's this great reversal because Durant says, you should come back with us and enjoy the glory of that success. And Reinhardt says, I don't want to go back. And I don't enjoy successes anymore. Because <laughs> okay. he doesn't have to be a pleasure anymore. 
Wow. What you said, Larry, about how he, you want him to need somebody on the ship. I think that's really true. The only person he needs on the ship that he like expresses that need for is Anthony Perkins. And he says, I need you here to document my journey into the black hole Mm -hmm. so you can bring it back to people and tell them about this great thing that I did. Again, it's like the dark side of science. Well, there's uh, this one other moment where he needs somebody and that's when he tells uh, Dr. McRae he looks at her after uh, Anthony Perkins' characters died, and he says, "Protect me from Maximilian." Right? right. <laughs> like I need, like I've created something I can't control. Right. And so he he recognizes in that moment that he's he's too far gone. Yeah, I I mean, but but it's interesting you put him first, Andy, because I think I think when we're talking about the Twenty Thousand Leagues uh uh movie. We talk about it as if it's Nemo's movies was where we ultimately landed on it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what we're saying here is it's Reinhardt's movie, even though he's, he's the hero not, for sure. He's yeah, not absolutely. one of the eight characters or I, I just made up that number, the characters that we came in with. Right. But this is this is about exploring his worldview more than it is about exploring the worldview of the characters who came on. Well, let's talk about yeah, he drives. The, he drives all the action. For sure. Yeah, let's talk about a couple of those other characters. Let's talk about um, Anthony Perkins character, Alex Durant. What do we think that, about him? That's the part that I would want to play in this movie. Um, I, I love characters like this. He he is the professor from 20,000 mm-hmm. Leagues Under the Sea. The he one really who's is. like, hey, this person who's the madman is really a genius. Maybe he's not so mad after all. There's so much we can learn from him. Uh, he's the one who wants to stay on the ship. He wants to go into the black hole too. And in the same way that I, I, I promise I'll stop talking about 20,000 leagues under the sea. I, I promise I will. But Alex is who Reinhardt thinks he is. Reinhardt thinks that he's like Alex, this perfectly rational person who wants to explore the universe and learn about the mysteries. He is not. There is a darkness in Reinhardt that will prevent it. Alex is his ideal. He doesn't, he puts himself above Alex a little bit because maybe he's smarter than Alex. Mm. But Alex is the kind of man, if you asked him, who am I? He would say, oh, I'm like this guy. And he's not. Well, he's isn't not. it interesting that, that Maximilian decides to kill Durant because he sees that parallel, I think. He's killing his better self. Yep, yep. And not only that, not only does he kill Alex... Alex is holding a book which has all of the things that Reinhardt is, has given Alex to bring back to mankind, all of the knowledge. And if Reinhardt really cared about the world of learning, he would never let that be destroyed. He destroys mm-hmm. the, his gift to mankind and Alex in the same moment. And from like a cinematic point of view, like that's a brilliant choice. Like, you know, they they obviously can't, Maximilian has these spinning rotors that he shoves into Anthony Perkins' chest to murder him. We can't obviously see the blood and flesh spray everywhere, but by putting this book in between the rotors and him, we're able to see those pages spray out Mm -hmm. as like a, you know, sort of like proxy for the flesh that's being like uh, sundered there. You know, it's interesting. um, Perkins reminds me in this movie of the the guy in um, The Matrix, Joe, uh, how do you say his last name? Pantaleone? who, you know, eats the steak and he's like, I don't care if this is real or not. This steak is delicious. <laughs> and like, he's sort of like, he's, he's taking the, the idea that, yeah, you know, I understand this is morally bankrupt, but there's something to be had here for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's Perkins all the way through. He's like, he understands that it's morally bankrupt what Reinhardt's doing, 
but he feels like there's something to be had for himself, which is his desire to know more, like that desire to know about the black hole, about the future. Well, let's talk about Captain Dan Holland, which is Robert Forster, which he is he's a well-known Hollywood character actor. Dennis, do you remember him as the sheriff in Twin Peaks? Oh, no, that's I don't think he's it's oh, in the in the yeah. new one. Yeah, 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 of course. And of course, from Jackie Brown. Right. You know, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. I'm going to say something. It's not going to be it's not going to be kind, but it's, okay. I don't think it's about the performance, but I think it's about the character as written. He doesn't mm-hmm. have a heck of a lot to do. And I think movie. he's I agree with you. And I think he's supposed to be the protagonist. I, and it may, and, and this might be a cast. I mean, he's the captain of the ship, right? And this might be a casting issue, but it's hard to have Anthony Perkins in a movie and not have him in the protagonist role. Although, although he's also not the protagonist because he dies, you know, before. The, well, I mean, that could be a nod to Psycho, right? Where we kill our protagonist halfway through the movie. I mean, I don't know, but I don't. Uh, think, I don't think it's an intentional nod to Psycho, but. Uh, <laughs> But one of these characters has to be the protagonist. But spoiler, when we get to protagonist problems, none of them is. Uh, but he <laughs> is the one who really should be the protagonist. Right. He is the leader. In theory, the leader makes decisions. And maybe some of the crew grumbles about the decisions here. And the, the leader has to care about the psychological goings on of everybody in his ship. There's just... There's just not that much. All he wants to do is requisition some parts to fix his ship and go on his way. And it's not a particularly interesting through line for him. Yeah, I think circumstances happen, then he has to adjust to those circumstances. But it isn't personal for him. He's not being tested his, his code isn't put to a test. He's not asked to make the decision he's never wanted to have to make in his life. It's just, you know, bad stuff is going down and he's doing the best that he can. And it's there. This guy needs more to do in this movie. I agree. I mean, he doesn't want to engage Cygnus. Pizer and Durant talk him into it. Um, he's the one that happens upon the robot or or whatever they are, funeral, right? Yes. Um, Which, uh, he, yeah, sorry, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right, right. Uh, he's the one who discovers the furnishings and the uniforms that call Reinhardt's story into question about who these, what happened, really happened to his crew. Um, when Bob tells Holland what happened to the crew, then Holland's the one who gives orders to Vincent to get McCray back on the Palomino. But um, it, it just... <sighs> It starts to it starts to get kind of like he could be this person. He could function this way. He could be the one that saves. He the has day in the, the ingredients. End. To he be could the be the one who who brings who you know brings. Uh, I keep wanting to call him Maximilian. Maximilian's the robot, but maybe Maximilian. But he could be the one that that brings Reinhardt down. Right. He should. Be. Uh, yeah, but he's not. He doesn't. I mean, Durant's dead, and you know. Uh, Here's the weirdest Harry part of dies, this movie, and then yeah, go the, ahead. I mean, it's not the weirdest part of this movie. There's so that's, many. That's quite a prize. Yeah, there. no, 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 no. <laughs> Here's the weirdest part about this character: is I got no indication that he was romantically involved with Kate until like ninety percent of the way through the movie. She kisses him on the cheek, 
and then they hold hands, and I'm like, oh, I, I guess I missed a love story somewhere in this thing. But if there had been a strong love story between the two of them, I mean, I mean, we've seen it, but it would be something for him to do. Yeah. Give him something to do. Have them be in love. Have them be in love and never have admitted to each other because it's unprofessional. And have them in this moment of crisis reveal feelings for each other. Do something. Just anything. Anything. Do anything. The movie's not interested in those things, though. I mean, that's that's it what's is, at the heart of it. It's not interested in a lot of stuff. No, it's not. I mean, I think it's interested in telling what you know, going down this road where we go where it wants to go and not necessarily where we it's like going into a black hole, right? Sure. <laughs> um, what about Charlie Pizer? Could Joseph also Bobbin? be the protagonist of this movie. Could be. He's yep. the youngest member of the crew, right? Right. He's right. not quite a kid, but he's more the kid than anybody else here. Yeah. Uh, he's the one who wants to see some action, but gets left behind on the ship. He has a sort of contentious relationship with Vincent, which implies that he need, has some maturing left to do. This could be a story in which he... Come, comes to some maturity, realizes that the action he wanted to see has has real cost. We could do something here too. Um, yeah, there's, there's the protagonist. No, we're 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 hopefully approaching the protagonist. I'm just waiting for Andy to bring the the protagonist up. <laughs> All right, Kate McRae. Not her though, that? right? Not her. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, again, I'm sure you've. Again, she could be because yeah. she's the person who has a mis- mystery. There's she's the one. Okay, I'm going to say this. She is the one who has the most vested on what's going on the Cygnus, her dad, right? Yes. And her, how do you avenge your father? How do you figure out what happened to your father? And she just sort of stands there. Like, she, there mo- like I, I mean, even after, even after uh, Durant dies, like, she is just stone. And she delivers a great line, but there's not a lot going on there. It's really flat. Give me a scene where Kate says to Reinhardt, can I see the quarters where my father lived in? Yeah. And have Reinhardt bring her there and have her look at a picture of her father and herself as a young girl and and like start making connections and start saying oh this this is here this thing i made for him this gift i gave him like like and and then sincerely thank reinhardt for preserving the room you could make a meal out of that and if you want to be a real sob you have reinhardt go there with one of the drone robots and we don't realize it at the time, but that drone robot is the one that's her father. She's in this room looking at all of her father's stuff, as Re- talking to Reinhardt about her father. Reinhardt is saying things about her father, and all the time, as like she's like, I'm closer to my father than I've ever been in years. And all the time, she really is close to him because he's that robot that's in the room with them. Do that. There's so many opportunities here. I'm... Oh. All right. I have another protagonist option for you. Harry Booth. Okay. <laughs> no, not the protagonist. <laughs> this is where he's in Mar- I mean, he's in Mar- who, he was Marty, right? I mean, it could work. He is and I, you know, I, I read in a description somewhere that he was the journalist on board, which I don't remember seeing him do any journalism, but apparently that's... <laughs> 
Two years well, like, that's uh, that's the this media movie. for you, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> We're watching this movie, and I'm like, "What's he doing on this ship? Like, what's his job?" He's like, with he TMZ. The- <laughs> Do you know what? You know what's interesting? My son, uh, my youngest, when he was still watching this movie, goes, "He's the bad guy. He's the antagonist." Mm, interesting, and, and he's not exactly wrong. Um, he's opportunistic in a way the rest of the crew isn't, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, let's steal this space station and bring it back. Then it becomes dangerous. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> he's also He also abandons the rest. He fakes an injury, abandons the rest of the crew. He's he's obvi- honestly, it's I think the most, com- he, he's the most complicated person person on the ship because he's he's a wild card factor right he's, yeah he he pretends and maybe even feels some camaraderie with the rest of his crew but not enough yeah yep not enough Weird. i found him very interesting i i was wondering if he was going to be redeemed in the course of the story for me he's Conseil in this story uh, Conseil from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where I'm not quite sure what side he's going to land, the penny is going to land on with him. Right, right. Uh, but but yeah, I thought I thought he, I thought a very good performance from Ernest Borgnine here. I had no idea what he was doing on the, didn't know <laughs> what his job was. He's writing words. I, wanted, writing I words. want to see the scene where Saying Ernest Borgnine stuff. has to go through basic training to become an astronaut. That would be great for me. Uh, yeah, don't know. Don't know. Okay. All right. Vincent, Roddy McDowell. I feel like um, Dennis has something he wants to say about Vincent. I think Dennis has something he wants to say about Vincent, too. This is our guy. <laughs> this is the hero. Vincent, which stands for Vital Information Necessary Centralized. Uh, this is our protagonist. I mean, clearly, this is the first voice we hear in the movie. This is the the battle that happens at what I think is the climax against Maximilian. The film ends on Maximilian standing atop the pillars of hell. He's our antagonist. Mm -hmm. And Vincent with the rest of the crew of the Palomino going into heaven. Vincent's the most charming character. He's the most interesting character. He's the one who we see in the most like heroic moments when he's in the shootout with the, uh, the, you know, the robot from that side. He's the guy. There's one moment where he says when he goes into that shootout, he says, I don't mean to sound superior, but I hate the company of robots. So this is like a self-hating robot who's encountering a ship filled with humanoid robots created by this, you know, evil mastermind. And he's got to triumph over them. And he eventually does. He is the triumph of humanity over robots embodied by a robot. I think it's like a revolutionary uh, idea uh, created in this film. And if you watch a movie with Vincent as the protagonist, I think you'll find it more enjoyable than seeking out some sort of like uh, resolution from any of these human losers that populate the Palomino. Although well, he's definitely, yeah, he's the heart of the movie. I mean, people love him enough to rescue him. Right. And he saves them. I, I have to yep. say something I, about this Vincent. Is a good, I don't know. This is good. Okay. You guys can both disagree with me and I will start this off by saying that I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> I'm I wrong. I, I find Vincent. <laughs> I find Vincent to be obnoxious. If I ever get a robot, I don't want him quoting all this stuff at me, all these aphorisms. Just do your job, dude. It's it's not charming. And I felt bad for C-3PO, who goes through nine Star Wars movies constantly being told to shut 
up for just being like a little bit afraid. But Vincent is obnoxious as all get at and everybody just smiles and chuckles with him. I'm like, I'm like, what's a droid got to do? to get a shut up from this crew. Cause, cause CPO, 3PO was like, maybe we could get engaged in diplomacy. And they're like, shut up, 3PO, don't make me hit you again. But Vincent is like, is like, actually, mm. there's more things in this heaven and earth than you possibly dreamed of, Horatio. I'm like, you are a robot. <laughs> shut up. Well, I am wrong. The one who descri- I, I, think, I am I wrong. Think he's Everybody the one who discovers the black hole, right? <laughs> He's the one who discovers the black hole in the first place. Well, yeah, he's the first one who says, you know, yeah. the reason for our present variation is this is the largest black hole I've ever the, encountered. He's mm. the one who ruins everything. He's the one he's who the sets villain. them on the mission. He's the villain because if, they, the if villain. he didn't we call bring this them the to hero, the black right? hole, <laughs> Alex would still be alive. Uh, Alex would still be alive. Vincent gets him killed because that robot has too much free will. I want, I want more Asimov's laws in there, baby. Um, get get those in there. I'm wrong, guys. I'm wrong. I know I'm no, wrong. I, I can't I, even defend I, I my viewpoint. It. I find him obnoxious and unbearable, but I love him visually. Visually, I love visually, that little. Yeah, it's interesting. Like they basically, you know, I mean, there's so many things that are like trying to. It's like they wanted to cozy up to Star Wars and yet seem like they weren't. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, oh, let's make Vincent. He, you know, they had, I was looking at some of the previous designs of Vincent and they're, you know, lots of different designs. He went through hundreds of designs and eventually they were like, he needs to look more like C-3PO and, or um, no, R2-D2. R- we make him look like R2-D2. And then they're like, uh, he looks too much like R2-D2. We'll make him float. Mm. That will distinguish him. And so they like create And the this floating, floating is cool. Thing. Yeah, oh, the I special mean, effects are, I mean, you know, I mean, that, amazing. We haven't really talked much about the special effects, but, you know, these are hand matte paintings with people. 150 on, matte paintings. With the previous people record on was, wires and no robots point. on teeter-totters. They sell every, the physicality. They sell every, the physicality of everything. Every 100%. effect is manually created. Uh, and that, for me, I think has, a, I, and I said the same thing when we were watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Like, that, for me makes it just a, a showcase, like a masterpiece no, I, 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 and something fact, I want to keep watching. It's magic. It's as magical as Mary Poppins. My, my youngest, I'll take any of these like effects over like uh, anything from Marvel any day. Like there's so much more. Yeah. Powerful. My yeah. youngest said to me, he's like, the actors are doing a really good job. I believe that they're they're floating in space. And I agree with him. I mean, the, mm-hmm. well, that that is definitely to this movie's credit. I, I absolutely appre- appreciate that. My well, favorite character, though, in this yeah. movie is old Bob. Slim Pickens. Oh, uh, <laughs> he, he is. He's had a hard life. I have more sympathy and empathy for old Bob than any other character. You get you know that he he has been treated terribly by these other robots. You know, he's seen bad things. And Vincent does some work to restore his self-esteem, yeah. to bring him back to a sense of self. the I am more sad about Vincent dying than I am about, not Vincent, Bob dying, than okay. I am about uh, Alex dying. Because oh, yeah. the, robots are, the robots are the heroes and, and villains of this Bob, movie. Like, Bob yeah. is the <laughs> most human character of any of these characters. Mm. You know, and, an, and I wanted to escape. An interesting thing, again, a behind the scenes thing, like when they presented the director with Bob, he was like, uh, this guy's not beat up enough. 
and he took a two by four and bashed their model over the top to create that sort of dented look on him. Mm-hmm. Cause he's like, he needs to be looked more beat up. And he does, he looks like crap, which is a great thing that they did in sci-fi, including star Wars at that point where it's like, he was a, a feces robot apparently mm-hmm. for biosanitation. So, mm-hmm. You know, it's a dirty job, but somebody's <laughs> got to do it. Space, Poor Bob, man. Man. It's rough. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Bob's so great because he's the one who, he's the one who gives them critical information and it confirms Holland's worst fears and everybody's worst fears about who Reinhardt really is. If you when can they're program, finally alone, he calls finally, it a death ship. Yeah. He says, this is a death ship. You can yeah. program my robot with old Bob uh, as the mm. personality. <laughs> I will take that model. You'll take Hands him over. Roddy. Okay, cool. Well, um, we've talked about protagonist problems. Oh boy. Have we? I think we've I think we've nailed that. Let's let's just go on to pitches. If there are always rumors swirling about the black hole franchise, what would we do with this content? Is it a prequel, sequel, remake? What would we do? Who wants to go I first? um well I'll just say like you know, there was there was talk of like a remake. Um the director of the you know the recent Tron reboot was gonna direct a a remake of this. I, I can't imagine, you know, despite all the problems that we've sort of pointed out, I can't imagine an improvement on this movie. This movie is such a perfect encapsulation of its time in cinema history between the seventies and the eighties. And that like tension between complicated character dramas and sort of plot driven blockbusters that I I don't see any reason to remake it personally. All right, Dennis, I've got a pitch that I think you'll enjoy. All All right. It appears at first glance to be a complete reboot, a modern retelling of the black hole. We have this crew, they're heading towards, they're heading towards the world's biggest black hole. There's a ship that's the Cygnus. We see all of the characters, Kate McRae, Harry Booth, Alex, the captain, Vincent, all of them. Vincent is super CGI. All of the stuff that normally, I, I have a feeling Dennis would hate for this. But then, what emerges from the black hole is the shuttle with the cast of the original black hole in it. The original Vincent, the original Pfizer, the original Kate, and the Reinhardt Maximilian. And they impose themselves into the story. So at first we've been seeing a modern remake, but then like the new Reinhardt opens up a pod and Maximilian slash Reinhardt combo comes through and kills him and starts taking over the ship. We have this contrast between who these characters were in the late 70s version of this movie to who they are in the modern retelling. And it's all about looking at these characters and being like, what's on the other side of what's on the other side of the black hole? But uh, sorry to end on that note, but can't swing it every pitch. That's how it is. (laughs) The ending is it just stops. Well, Dennis, this has been a treat. Will you come back sometime for another movie? Yeah, it's been delightful. Uh, thank you for indulging my um, my weird opinions about protagonists. Uh, no, I think I think you're uh, I think you're really onto something. <laughs> I really do. What movie? Are we ta- I love this movie. I don't know. I'm just like, I, it just like it hits the childhood part of me. It's like it freaked me out as a kid. Um, it made me love weird uh, stories like. I think there's two types of like um, Gen Xers, uh, the Star Wars kids and the black hole kids. And I will I will be a black hole kid. Right on. Right on. 
What movie are we tackling next week, Larry? Next week, I'm excited because I've never seen this movie, but I've always wanted to. We are watching the original Absent-Minded Professor. Oh, from 1961. We will all experience together the first uttering of the word flubber. I'm so excited. I I really want to love this one, Andy. Oh, I think you will. I really think you will. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, friends, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or even a classic movie fan? And please check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. You can tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6 or drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon.